Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to take us through Psalm 110, but I need God's help to do that, so why don't you pray with me? Gracious Father God, thank you for this wonderful morning that you've given us, and thank you that you've brought us together uh, to have fellowship under your word. We thank you for this psalm, Psalm 110, and we pray that you'll be with us as we work through it, that we might hear your word, and that you might give us hearts to respond to what your word has to say. Amen. Well, I was in Scotland recently when it was announced that the Queen had died, and I found myself in a history-making moment. The whole UK went into mourning, and the BBC had rolling TV coverage solemnly remembering the Queen's life. And it seemed to me like anyone who had ever met the Queen was on TV being interviewed, and everyone had a warm recollection or an anecdote to share. But my favourite one was from a man called Richard Griffin, who was one of the Queen's protection officers. And the story goes that he and the Queen were out walking in the grounds surrounding the Balmoral Estate, and they came across two American hikers on the trail. They stopped to chat, as the Queen liked to do in this sort of situation, but it very quickly became clear that they had no idea who the Queen was. They asked her if she lived in the area. To which she replied, well, I normally live in London, but I do have a holiday house just over the hill. The American said, you know, we've heard the Queen has a house nearby. Have you two ever met her? <laughs> the Queen and her officer exchanged a look, and she said, well, I've never met her, but Richard here meets her regularly. <laughs> the hikers were so impressed to meet someone who knew the Queen that they insisted on getting a photo, and so they held out their camera to the Queen hoping that she might take a photo of them and Richard. Uh, well, Richard very quickly and tactfully suggested that perhaps it would be better if he took a photo of them with his female companion. And off they went, none the wiser of the brush they just had with royalty. And as they left, the Queen Riley said to Richard, I'd like to be a fly on the wall when they show that photo to their friends back home. <laughs> A case of mistaken identity. I'm sure it happens all the time, but what made this one so funny and so special was the identity of the person in question was so important. Those hikers had no idea who they were dealing with. Well, there's no mistaking the identity, the royal identity of the author of the psalm before us today. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David, as Angel just read for us there. And the fact that David is the author is really important. You see, this psalm is one of those key chapters in the Old Testament amongst all the chapters that really stands out above the rest. It points forward to the New Testament in really important ways, and lots of the New Testament refers back to this psalm. In fact, this is the most frequently quoted chapter in the New Testament, so it's clearly very important. David, if you don't know, was God's chosen king of the nation of Israel. He wasn't the first king, that was Saul, but David was special because he was God's choice. And when we first meet him, he was a shepherd boy, the youngest of eight sons of Jesse from the tribe of Judah, and he was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the king of Israel. As God's chosen king, he was held in very high regard by the Jews. And David, filled with God's spirit, was inspired to write many of the Psalms that we have in the Bible today. And this Psalm in particular shows David eavesdropping on a conversation between God and someone who David describes as my Lord. Look at the start of verse 1 there. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, the first Lord in that phrase is all in capital letters, which means it's actually the Hebrew word for the name God gives himself. 
Yahweh. So you could read that opening line as, God says to my Lord. So this is a message from God to David's Lord, who's a bit of a mysterious figure at the moment. Clearly it's someone who's superior to David, which is why David calls him Lord. But God makes two pronouncements or edicts as to the identity of this Lord of David's. And the first one, which is on your outline there, David's Lord is God's right-hand king. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God says to David's Lord, take this position of honour, this position of authority, of precedence here at my right hand. I want you to be my right-hand man. Sit next to me and we will rule until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now David, as the king, would have loved to use his enemies as a footstool. In the book of Joshua, when God gives victory to Joshua over some Amorite kings, Joshua invites the commanders of the army to come forward and put their foot on the necks of the defeated kings. It was a symbol of just how emphatic the victory that God had given them was. Also, the idea of putting your feet up on, a foot, on your footrest, it sounds like a luxury after a long day's work, doesn't it? Relaxing after weary labour. David had many enemies, he had many wars to fight. I'm sure he longed for the victory and rest that such a picture conveys. In verse 2, God promises David's Lord that he will extend his mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The scepter, as you probably know, is a symbol of royal rule, and Zion is the mountain on which the capital Jerusalem sits. So this is a God-ordained kingship. And this kingly rule comes with a willing army. Verse 3 says, your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendour. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. When World War I broke out and Australia began enlisting people into the armed forces, you had to be at least 18 years of age to sign up. But that didn't stop younger boys from putting their hands up. There are many, many stories of boys lying about their age because they were desperate to fight. Many younger brothers who didn't want to be the only one left behind, for example. And the Australian War Memorial Roll of Honour records boys as young as 15 whose age wasn't properly recorded until they didn't come home. Brave? Definitely. Foolhardy and stubborn? Probably. But willing, motivated, eager to serve king and country. It reflects an attitude across all the troops that a military leader would greatly desire, a belief in the cause, a willing heart. Not only will God's, troop, God's king's troops be willing, but they'll also be splendid, youthful, vigorous, like the morning dew. I don't know how you feel in the morning when you wake up, but uh, before I've had my first coffee, you couldn't exactly describe me as fresh as the morning dew. But these troops are youthful, fresh, arrayed in holy splendour, kitted out in spiritual battle dress of God's army. It's my prayer that each of us at DPC would be such willing, youthful warriors in the service of our God. And that holy splendour and the ever-renewing freshness, it, it hints at a spiritual element of this army, doesn't it? Like it's not just a here and now military victory, but an eternal spiritual victory. This is an army you want to be a part of. This is a, this is a king that we want to follow. We're dealing with David's Lord, God's king, who's been given a heavenly royal authority willing followers, and victory over his enemies. What about the second edict on your outline there? David's Lord is a priest forever. 
Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So David's Lord is God's chosen king, but he's also a priest. Now I'm sure you've already all marked the date in your calendar, Saturday the 6th of May 2023. That's going to be the coronation of King Charles III. He's obviously already the king, that happened as soon as his mum died, but on the 6th of May it will be symbolically enacted and it will be highly symbolic. There is a lot of stuff that will happen at that event that will seem pretty unusual to a 21st century audience. There's a coronation chair, there's a special anointing spoon, um, the stone of destiny plays a part. But the interesting thing in light of this passage is that when King Charles is anointed and the crown is placed on his head, it will be the Archbishop of Canterbury who's doing that job. It'll be the most senior priest of the Church of England who will be the one effectively anointing and appointing the king. Someone needs to do that. Someone needs to be that person of authority who can put the crown on the king's head. And in this case, it's a representative of the spiritual and the transcendent who is anointing the leader of the worldly and the imminent. These two roles are both important, but they are distinct. They are separate. King and priest. Two different offices for two different people. That was true under the Old Testament law. Just like Samuel, the prophet, anointing David the king, the king and the priest were necessarily separate roles. And in fact, one of the things that King Saul did wrong, the king before David, was to act like a priest. He offered sacrifices before a battle, which is something that God had told him not to do. The king can't act as a priest, and the priest can't act as a king. And yet here, we see David's Lord, God's chosen king, is also a priest. And just in case we think that might be a mistake, the point is an emphatic one. God has sworn it and will not change his mind. God doesn't swear very often. He's God after all. We don't suspect him of lying. His word alone is powerful enough to bring creation into being, so there's no real need for him to swear an oath. But as if to underline the importance of this edict, God has sworn and will not change his mind. This is an eternal promise. God's chosen king will also be a priest forever. Now, a priest acts as a mediator between God and man. And under the law of Israel, the king was from the tribe of Judah, but the priests were from the tribe of Levi. And these Levitical priests were responsible for the sacrifices that ensured Israel's cleanliness and their ability to continue to relate to their holy God. But the Levite priests had a problem. They were human, they were sinful, and they died. There'd be a high priest for a few years, but then he would die and he'd be replaced by another high priest and so on and so forth, a bit like our prime ministers. But the book of Hebrews says this is a fatal flaw of the Levitical priesthood. They had to keep offering sacrifices day after day after day, first for their own sins, because they were sinful, and then for the sins of the people. It was a never-ending cycle. But here in Psalm 110, we're not dealing with a frail human priest, but a priest forever. And not from the Levitical priesthood, but in the order of Melchizedek. Which, of course, begs the question, who or what is a Melchizedek? Well, happily, even if it's not a familiar name to our ears, at least it's a unique one, and it doesn't occur very much in the Bible, but we can find it back in Genesis 14, back when Abraham was still called Abram, just after he received the promises of God. 
Um, he had just successfully rescued his nephew Lot from some enemy kings, and he came back and he was blessed by a mysterious king called Melchizedek. Let me read Genesis 14, verse 18 for you. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we can see that Melchizedek was king of Salem, which was probably the name for Jerusalem at the time. And Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And Salem in the Hebrew means peace. So he was king of righteousness and king of peace. He was also, we can see there, priest of God most high. So he was a king and a priest at the same time. He gave a blessing to Abram, and Abram responded by giving him a tenth of everything. Now, that tenth is very significant because that's what Israel had to do for the Levite priests. They set aside a tenth of their produce and gave it to the Levites in acknowledgement of the fact that the Levites weren't working to produce their own food but dedicating themselves to the priesthood. But here we have Abram, who's the patriarch, the great-grandfather of the 12 tribes of Israel, giving a tenth of all he has to this priest king, Melchizedek. Hebrews says that's kind of like Levi himself, who is the father of the Levite tribe, giving a tenth to this priest, albeit as just a twinkle in his great-granddad's eye. David's lord is a priest king, just like Melchizedek was, greater than the Levitical priests, with a priesthood that will last forever. God's chosen king and God's forever priest. Clearly, we're dealing with a complex and impressive and important figure here. Verse 5 and 6 anticipates this priest king bringing God's judgment. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the earth. David's Lord will put the world in order and bring God's judgment against those opposed to him. David was a good king. Uh, but in many ways, his rule was a frustrated one. He had victory, sure, but he also had defeats. And he certainly wasn't in a position to put up his feet and rest from his enemies. But here he anticipates a future priest king who achieves just that, a decisive and final victory over God's enemies. It's going to be thirsty work by the sounds of things. Verse 7 there says he will drink from a brook along the way. So clearly this king still has human needs, but he'll be victorious. Just as God has promised, he will lift his head high. So this psalm tells us about the identity of David's Lord. He's appointed by God and given authority. He's a kingly ruler who sits at God's right hand. He's an eternal priest as well as a king. He has a willing army of followers and he brings judgment from God upon his enemies. So who are we dealing with here? Who is this priest king, this Lord of David's? Well, as I've already hinted, this key chapter of the Old Testament points forward in many ways to the promised king or Messiah. It points forward to Jesus. The identity of David's Lord is Jesus. I mean, there are so many clues that I reckon even those hikers who couldn't spot the queen could spot Jesus in this psalm. But isn't it incredible that David, writing a thousand years before Jesus was even born, can paint such a vivid picture of Jesus' identity? And this vision, as I said, is picked up throughout all the New Testament. In the Gospels, Jesus quotes this psalm to challenge the Pharisees' understanding of who the Messiah was. 
How can this Messiah be the son of David if David refers to him as Lord? Surely David wouldn't refer to one of his descendants as my Lord. The father is always greater than the son in Jewish culture. There must be something more to him. Peter knows who he's dealing with when he preaches at Pentecost. He quotes this psalm to claim that the resurrected Jesus now sits at God's right hand in victory over death. And as I've already quoted, the book of Hebrews does an extended exegesis of this psalm to show that Jesus is greater than the angels. He sits at God's right hand and he is our perfect, eternal high priest. Jesus can sit at God's right hand because he's God's son. He thirsts because he's also a man. His identity is fully God and fully man and so he's the perfect mediator between us and God. And this perfect mediation, this perfect atonement was achieved in his sacrificial death for us on the cross. This once for all sacrifice, so much better than the daily sacrifices of the Levitical priests, they were never going to cut it. And he rose, resurrected from this perfect sacrifice, sitting down at God's right hand and even putting his feet up because the job is done. He is victorious, even over the last enemy to be defeated, which is death. This sacrifice is no mere accounting for sins. It's no one goat for two acts of greed, three lustful thoughts and 15 lies. This is a sacrifice that has the power to change hearts, to make the sinful holy, to make the obstinate willing. David's Lord is our Lord, our perfect priest king, Jesus. Well, the question for us then is, how will I respond to the identity of this priest king? You'd be kicking yourself if you'd talked to the Queen without realising who she was. How embarrassing. What a missed opportunity. If only I'd known who I was dealing with. The consequences of failing to recognise God's King are much worse. This psalm paints only two options. You can either be one of his willing followers, arrayed in holy splendour and invigorated for his service, or you can be one of his enemies and face his judgement. If you haven't yet responded to this priest king and chosen to follow him, then today is the day to do that. Don't put this off to tomorrow. Your king is calling you now. I feel the urgency of this call for family, for brothers, for in-laws, for friends who are not yet part of this kingdom. They need to meet King Jesus. I need to introduce them. I think I'd better sign up to that evangelism training that Janet mentioned earlier. It can sometimes be easy to forget that we're living under the lordship of King Jesus when the world is telling us anything but this truth. I recall a conversation at work a few years ago with a work colleague just talking about our weekends. He told me that he'd been to his nephew's school awards night and that his nephew had won the scripture prize. Fantastic, I thought. Here is an opportunity for me to share the truth of King Jesus. But before I could get a word out, he followed up with, of course, he knows that's all just fairy tales. We tell him not to believe any of that nonsense. My heart sank and I felt like a giant balloon that had just been punctured. And I, just, I thought of lots of great things to say on the bus ride home about four hours later. How do I identify with the willing troops of verse 3 when the culture I swim in is antagonistic towards my king? When identifying as a follower of Jesus might get me shouted down or shut out accused of narrow-mindedness or of being hateful. When a contentious topic comes up and I can't muster up the courage to lay my cards on the table. Well, this psalm is a helpful reminder of exactly who we're dealing with. 
in a world where identity is seen as all important, the only identity that truly matters is that of our priest king, Jesus. And thankfully, belonging to this kingdom doesn't depend on my competence or my courage, only on his grace. We don't need to be perfect to approach God. We've got a perfect high priest. I'm not saved because of my willingness to serve, but I am willing to serve because I'm saved. I need to keep coming back to these truths. It isn't easy. The victory may already be won, but the skirmishes continue. We still struggle with broken bodies, mental ill health, imperfect family relationships. We will be tempted and ensnared by the worries of this world. Throughout the Psalms, there are times when King David felt overwhelmed by opposition. Mighty armies and powerful kings stood against him. But here in Psalm 110, he only anticipates a future victory and identifies our promised prince. Our spiritual reality is this. If you follow Jesus as your king, then the victory is already assured. That was true when David wrote this psalm a thousand years before Jesus went to the cross. It's true now, 2,000 years after Jesus achieved this victory, and it will still be true 10,000 years from now when we can rejoice with him at God's right hand in heaven. Let me pray. Thank you, Father God, that even 3,000 years ago, the truth of your eternal priest king was on the heart and mind of King David. Thank you that we, 3,000 years later, can see this truth worked out in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is a powerful, victorious king, but also a perfect priest who willingly gave himself for our sins. I pray, Lord, that we would remember his kingship and, Lord, give us boldness and willingness as we live this out this week. Amen.